Kind of interesting because part of the message today is about control. And so I'm completely out of control and trying not to feel anxious about it. And so that uh, maybe this is God's way of just trying to help illustrate that even better. But I want to just give you kind of a quick update. Uh, Again, last week um, I met with two members of what is called the Greater Huron Development Corporation, and they try to raise money and do some things around the community to to help better the community. And uh, I had shared with them our vision for downtown and the, the church and some of the things God's putting in our hearts. And they were excited. I was, uh, I, was, I was nervous going into the meeting, and uh, they literally were so excited that I was dumbfounded by how excited they were. And uh, one of them said, Pastor, thank you so much for your vision, and uh, I believe your church is going to grow. And um, I don't know if he's a believer or not, but uh, praise God, uh, he's opening doors. I've got a couple more meetings this week. Uh, I've talked with business owners. And so please continue to be in prayer for the variance hearing that's coming up on October the 17th. Pray for favor with the businesses around us, the people around us, the finances. Pray for our leaders as we walk through this. And uh, just during the transition time, I mean, there's going to be a lot of transition and a lot of change, and we all need a little bit of grace as we walk through that. So continue to pray for all of that. Now, today we are on uh, a series that we started last week called Anxious for Nothing by Max Lucado. It's a, a book based upon, or it's a sermon series based upon a book by Max. And last week I actually shared my story, my testimony. And so many of you uh, did not know that, what I walked through eight years ago and what I literally continue to walk through even today. And uh, I'm glad that, I mean, so many of you have shared with me how that helped you and resonated with you, and I am very glad that I was able to, to do that. Um, I know that some of you said this was the best sermon that I've ever preached, but just like Jesus, uh, I know it's only one week until you think that this is the worst sermon I've ever preached. So as much as I appreciate the compliment, I really don't live uh, on that roller coaster anymore, and I'm glad that what I shared with you helped. But the proof that it's the best sermon I ever preached is what we do with it. Because if all I did last week was impress you and, you know, make you be excited and nothing really changed in our lives, then it really wasn't the best sermon I ever preached. So um, we looked at Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where it said, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And remember, that's not just a call to avoid sin in our lives. It's the call to avoid anything culturally that contradicts God's word. And one of the things that culturally that we do is we rush 24-7. We do not take time to rest. We do not take time to say no. We always think we have to get bigger and better. We go into debt. We overspend. We're involved in everything. We don't say no to anything. We don't have margin in our time or margin in our finances. And then we wonder why we have anxiety. I mean, here's the thing. If you leave home and you are, you've got just enough time to get to work, you're setting yourself up for failure. You're setting yourself up for anxiety. If you budget everything, oh yeah, we can afford this new car payment and it'll just cut us down to the penny. Okay, so don't be surprised when anxiety fills your life. We have got to not be conformed to the pattern of this world. You don't need bigger. You don't need better. You don't need newer. Okay, you need margin in your finances. You need margin in your schedule. Your kids don't need to be in every activity and sport under the sun. We have to create margin in our lives. We get so good at just saying yes to everything. But here's the thing. If you don't learn to say no to some things, your yes is meaningless. In fact, you have to say no 
to some things because you cannot say yes to everything. And so we have to say no in, in, to things that we want and even good things. As a church, every ministry out there, we can't partner with them all. We can't be involved in them all. We have to know what God is calling us to do and biblically use our yes wisely. And uh, one of those things is in the area of a Sabbath. I don't know if you understand this, but this is something that really God has just really been pouring on thick in my life. Everywhere I turn, I read about it. And so um, this week I was like, okay, God, I get the picture. Um, and if you read, heard my story last week, you understand I don't Sabbath well. Um, I, because I, I just always go, 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 go. And I, I feel like I can handle it. But my creator says otherwise. Okay? If you look at all the Ten Commandments, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but the Sabbath actually is the longest and most um, detailed of all of the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you've ever recognized that. The rest of them are pretty cut and dry, short and simple, but the Sabbath goes into great detail. And in Genesis chapter 2, the Sabbath is the first thing God says is holy. On this planet, the first thing God looks at, he said all of it was good, but the Sabbath, he blessed it and called it holy. And he rested from all of his work. God didn't rest because he was tired. I mean, I know that it was, a, it was a big deal creating everything we see, but he didn't rest because he was tired. He rested and he called that day holy. Jesus came later and told us in Mark chapter 2 that man was not made, or the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so we have to learn to do that. So Pastor John and I have changed up our schedule a little bit to maybe force me into a Sabbath. And he is going to start driving bus full-time for the school district. And so they, as a family, want to, to try to take care of some things in their lives. And uh, we just feel like God has opened this door, and so we've given him permission to do that. And he's changing his day off until Friday. So Friday will be his day off, and I will be taking Monday off from this day forward. I will try not to check my email. I will try not to check texts. I will try not to take voicemails, because, not because I don't like you or anyone else, but because I have to. I will be tempted to check them and respond to them, but I will do my best with God's help to do it. Um, and so we just want to make you aware of the change and make sure that you understand as we walk through this ahead. Um, if you are in need on Monday, Pastor John is available. If you're in need on Friday, I'm available to you. But uh, help us protect those days and protect what God calls as a Sabbath. And uh, so that kind of fits in here, but kind of not. But this week, we're going to celebrate God's goodness. Celebrate God's goodness. Last week, we talked about the starting point for overcoming anxiety being the connection to our Heavenly Father through Jesus and knowing Him as He is, getting our identity from Him, getting our security from Him. And Max gave us the word CALM. It's an acronym, CALM. Celebrate God's goodness is how it starts. And so that's what we're going to start with. So if you're in Philippians chapter 4, we're going to read the entire passage in its context. Um, now, if you want to wait for that one, Jess, just hold up. Um, Philippians chapter 4, uh, we're going to read it in context. It's not on the screen, so you're going to have to just read it from your Bible. Uh, I know I should have given you a warning, but uh, I want to look at it all in context just to give you that, the, the background, and then we'll get into it. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. 
And the peace of God, which transcends or passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, excuse me, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. So Paul's prescription for anxiety starts in verses 4 and 5. And so if you want to throw those up on the screen, this is what he says. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And Paul basically in the Greek language uses just about everything he can in these two verses just to make this point. When he uses the word rejoice, he uses it as an imperative, which is a command, and he uses it in present tense. So what Paul is meaning is, I want you to continually and habitually rejoice, always rejoicing. Then he takes away the the expiration date completely and says, rejoice in the Lord always. And if that weren't enough, he repeats himself, I will say it again. Rejoice. Now, as good parents, I know that maybe you understand this, that there are times in our lives where we, can you bring my mic down maybe in the monitor a little bit? I'm getting pretty echoey up here, and I, when I get excited, I don't want to blow everyone away. But um, So rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. If you're a parent, a good parent, you've said this before to your children. I'm going to say it again because you want to make sure it's clear And this is what Paul is doing in these verses. And so as we look at it, just like we looked at it last week, is Paul calling us to have this uninterrupted gladness all the time where we just walk around with a happy face on all the time and we're just, yeah, everything's great. Got cancer today. Hallelujah. Uh, Is that what he's calling us to do? Well, no, we know that's not what he's calling us to do because this verse is not a call to feel anything. This, this verse is a call to do something, to rejoice, not just to rejoice, but to rejoice in the Lord, in the Lord, to celebrate his goodness. It's not a call to rejoice about your circumstance. It's not a call to rejoice in how you've been treated. It's not a call to rejoice about your trial or your sickness. It's a call to rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in his faithfulness, rejoice in his never-changing character, rejoice in his nearness, rejoice in his understanding of your weakness. Because here's the thing, God is not a waster. We serve a coupon-clipping God if you will. He doesn't waste anything. He collects every one of your tears in a bottle. None of it is wasted. He collects every one of your prayers in a bowl in heaven. None of it is wasted. And he has promised to redeem every moment of your life, the dumb choices you have made, the hurtful things people have done to you, all of the things you've walked through. He has promised to redeem them and to work his purposes, his good, pleasing, and perfect will into your life through him. He will not waste anything. That's who he is, and that's why we rejoice. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, James says, Consider it joy when you 
when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that when your faith is tested, it produces perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work so you can be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And so to rejoice in the Lord is a decision to be rooted in the confidence that there is a God, he really does exist, that he is active, that he is involved, that he is in control, and that he is good. And that whole list that I gave you, you probably are like, I know that. I know God exists. I believe it. You wouldn't be here today if you didn't believe it, that he exists. You do believe that he's active. You do believe that he's involved. You do believe that he's in control. You do believe that he's good. But do we act like it? Has it changed how we respond at work? Has it changed how we respond to our kids? Has it changed how we respond to the people around us or react? Does it change how we respond to the moment before us with the Kavanaugh hearing? Stop acting like God in heaven is surprised by this moment and has no idea what to do. He has absolutely been aware of this before the world began, and there's a mystery hidden for you if you'll seek it out. Turn off Fox News, turn off CNN, turn off everything else you look at, and get his insight. And then there will not be anxiety in your life. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Put, can you put verses 4 and 5 back up again? Let your gentleness be evident to all. Here's the thing I know about anxiety. It never produces gentleness. It doesn't. Anxiety actually, eventually, when you just let it go unchecked, produces outbursts of anger, frustration, because of how, what's going on inside of you. Anxiety boiling over is never gentle. And I don't think it's a mistake that Paul says right here, let your gentleness. Do you know that gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit? And the only way that gentleness is going to boil over in our lives is if we understand the Spirit who lives in us, if we understand our connection to the Father through Jesus, that He is control, that He is sovereign, that He is good, that He is working, that He is in control of my life and my situation, and even the thing that I'm looking at right now that doesn't make any sense. And when we understand that, the gentleness begins to be cultivated in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit has to be cultivated through our choices. It has to be cultivated by what we think about and talk about and put into our minds. And we'll get to that in the weeks ahead. But here's the thing. We're going to start with the first thing. Write it down if you're taking notes. Number one, God exists and he is active. God exists and he is active active. Now, don't say, well, I know that one, so I don't need to write it down. Write it down, because you need to remind yourself all week long, God exists, and he is active. In Acts chapter 17, there are tons of scriptures, but let's look at Acts 17. Paul preaching to the, to the Greeks in Athens says this, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone, not just his people, everyone, life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this 
so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. He's near. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets who didn't know him have said, we are his offspring. That tells us that God is consistently and continuously involved with all of his creation. See, anxiety is the temptation to believe that there's chaos all around me, that God is not in control of this moment. And that's what anxiety leads us to believe. Now, by the way, when Paul later on, and we'll talk about this next week when we ask God for help, when he says, do not be anxious about everything but pray, he's not saying the moment you feel anxious, condemn yourself. He says the response to the anxiety you feel is pray. Pray instantly on the spot, right there. God, I feel anxious about this. Help me to understand you're in control. God, that you are sovereign, that you are good, that you are working for me. Yeah, you actually use the scripture to fight and battle the anxiety that you feel going on inside of you. That's what we do. So when we begin to sense that things are out of control or or random, you have to talk to yourself. David did it all the time, and he was a man after God's own heart. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. I will trust him. And then he starts to recount all the ways that God did stuff for him. And then he ends it by saying, why are you so downcast? Oh, my soul, put your hope in God and trust him. Now, it's not like a pill that you can get from the doctor that you take it once and anxiety just ceases. It could work that way. But this is something that you have to continue to do until your emotions line up with what is true. Take it from a recovering anxiety-aholic or whatever I am. I don't know. Psalm 116, verse 7. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. God gave me this verse a few weeks ago, and I was reading through the Psalms just in my daily reading, and this jumped off the page at me, and I was like, oh, yeah. Because I was in all kinds of turmoil because I couldn't understand what was going on, couldn't see things with my eyes, and then this comes across, return to rest emotions. That's what we're saying. Return to rest my mind, my emotions. Return, because the Lord has been and always will be good to you. Jesus himself said, if you're weary and you're burdened, come to me and I will give you rest. That's not a call to be inactive. It's a call to be intentionally active based on what is true, not on what you feel or see. For those of us that are control freaks in the room, I don't know if any of you want to admit that out loud, but you feel like you have to control everything. That's why you watch the stock market perpetually. That's why you watch the news, because you you feel like you have to know everything. You have to be in complete control of your kids. You have to be in complete control of everything. Uh, We were never made for that. In fact, control freaks are more anxious than anyone else. Because it's impossible to be in control all the time. You can't control the world around you. You can't control the people around you. You can't even control your own kids. You can't. It's impossible. I mean, you can direct them. You can pray over them. You can guide them. You can help them. You can discipline them. But you cannot control them. And the more you try to control the people around you, the more you realize it's like chasing the wind. And here's the thing. The reason is because control is not ours to take. Control is his. 
It's our job to relinquish control and trust him. Rest in the truth that God is actively involved in my world and in the world around me. In Isaiah chapter 30, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. If you're trying to gain control, if you're going to get louder at your kids, I mean, yelling at your kids will not produce what you hope it will. Yelling at your spouse will not do it. Yelling at your boss, yelling at anybody. Oh, dear Jesus, I just did that this week. Not my boss, because, you know, but I, I did. I had to repent this week because of something I did. I'm like, I'm trying to control this moment. I can't control this moment. And I refuse to try. Look at Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. This is a really pr- familiar verse for us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Now, all of us love that verse. We put it on plaques in our house. We put it everywhere. And we say we trust God. But the problem is we want to trust God and have full understanding. And when we don't have full understanding, when we don't understand what's going on, when we don't see how that's really going to work out, when we are confused or we're in the dark or there seems to be chaos, we no longer trust God. We trust our own understanding. I don't see how that's going to work out. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Because if you don't trust him in the dark, if you don't trust him in uncertainty, if you don't trust him in confusion, when you don't have understanding, then what you're doing is leaning into your own understanding and you're not leaning into his sovereignty, his control. If he's, or the, the second point, not only is God active and involved, God is in control. He is sovereign. He is sovereign. That's the word we use, but that literally means he's in control. Look at what Ephesians 1.11 says. In him, we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. There is a doctrine called predestination in the church world today that I believe is an error in how it's presented. Now, here's the the idea of predestination right here in Scripture. Some people believe that we are nothing more than puppets and robots forced into whatever God has designed and whatever he has chosen. But you have to take every scripture and you have to understand that this is a complete book. Even though it was written by 40 different men over a period of about 1,600 years, this is a complete book of revelation. And so when you take the idea of predestination and that God is in control and he picks who he's going to save and who he's going to damn from the beginning, that doesn't line up with the rest of the book. Okay, what this idea of predestination is, because God says his will is that none perish. Okay, so you know what that verse tells me? If God's will is that none perish, God's complete will never gets to be done. Yeah, wrap your brain around that one. Because some will perish. But his perfect will is that every person would find him and come to him. Okay, now God, his will doesn't just happen automatically. He knew before the foundation of the world every choice you would ever make. 
And he knew all of the bad choices you would make and all of the good choices that you would make. And what this verse says is he is working in your life to bring about his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And now every time we make a wrong turn, maybe his perfect will gets a little less perfect. But he has known it from the beginning. I don't know if you've ever used a GPS in your car and you've made a wrong turn. And it's like rerouting rerouting, make a right, make a right, and then you avoid the next one, and, and you know where you think you're going, but the GPS is like, do it! Turn now! Turn around when possible! Okay, the GPS sometimes is relentless, but here's the thing. God is even more relentless, and every time you avoid the turn he's asked you to take, it's not like he just powers off. He's in control. And he is going to work his absolute best will into your life, no matter what has been done to you, no matter what has happened to you, no matter what you've even chosen, because he's in control. And he didn't pick all of those things for you, because his will is determined on our choice or the choices of others around us. God did not author someone to sexually abuse you. He didn't do that to teach you a lesson. But he promised to take the, the wrong choice that someone else made and work his best will into your life still. But you've got to trust him. You've got to trust him. In Romans chapter 11, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his path beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? From, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You can't get understanding in its fullness because you're not him. And there are going to be days you just have to trust and walk in the, the belief that he's in control. Colossians chapter 1, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or powers or rulers or authorities or senates or supreme courts. Settle down, O oh my soul. Return to your rest. Maybe it wasn't by mistake that Tent America 24-7 prayer was taking place at every state capitol this weekend. Some of you didn't pray at all this weekend. And yet there were people 24 hours a day, Friday, Saturday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, interceding, crying out to God for change in our nation. And while you were watching the whole thing on CNN and Fox News getting in a turmoil, they were telling God, hey, work on our behalf. Which one do you think was more productive? I know I'm messing everything up today, but God is above all things. He's before all things. He's the alpha. He's the omega. It means he's the first and last. He's the A and the Z. He's the beginning and the end. He's immortal. He's present everywhere so that everyone can know him. And he knows the end from the beginning. God doesn't have to just make it up as he goes along. He doesn't have to wait for you to make a stupid choice and then go, oh no, what are we going to do next? He knew every stupid choice you would make before you were even born. How reassuring is that, that he died for you? He demonstrated his love knowing all of that. You don't have to perform for him. He knows you better than you know you. Our heart can be deceptive. God can't be deceived. He will work his will in our lives. And none of us today would question with our mouth that God is in control. But let me ask you again, do we live like it? 
Do we try to manipulate situations afraid that if we don't act, we're going to lose out? Yeah, there's a call to act, but it comes from the Spirit of God, not our own understanding. When we do things behind the scenes, when we talk about people behind their backs, secret and shameful ways, we renounce them. We do everything openly and we do everything publicly. We manipulate ourselves to try to get a promotion at work. Manipulation and control are demonic forces. And if you want to walk in them, you're going to produce anxiety everywhere. Your kids are going to be in turmoil. You're going to be in turmoil. Everything's going to be in turmoil. And you're going to blame everyone around you. You're going to blame the place you work. You're going to blame the place you worship. You're going to blame the pastor, the deacons, the friends, the coworkers, your spouse. And it's all because you will not relinquish control and you're trying to manipulate behind the scene. God exists. He is active. He is near. And he is in control. And if you're taking notes, here's number three. God is good and God is for you. God is good and he is for you. One of my favorite quotes from the book that Max writes this week is that our anxiety decreases as our understanding of our Father increases. Our anxiety decreases as our understanding of our Father increases. I told you a few weeks ago the message that was shared in this worship center by Jeff Dio is a profound, prophetic message for not just this church, but the church today, to be reconnected to the heart of our Father. We have got to be connected to our Father. We've got to understand who He is, and He is good. Luke chapter 18, Jesus says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Here's a phrase I grew up hearing in church that's a, that's a lie. There will be good people in hell. There will be no good people in hell. Do you know how I know that? Because the scripture says no one is good. There are no good people. I know that's a way to grow a church, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not a good people and you're not a good people. There are no good people. So there will be no good people in hell. Only God is good. And that's why when we try to determine what is good and what we think is good and what's not good, we can't do it. We need the spirit and we need the word. Because our version of good is tainted because we're not good. God alone is good. Matthew chapter 5, I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so you will be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. Don't misinterpret what that says. He, Jesus is talking about our view of evil and good. He sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, because the Bible also says no one is righteous. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, God doesn't withhold things from people because they're bad. You have to get this in your head because we're conditioned to believe if someone experiences something bad, it's because they were bad. While we were bad, he demonstrated his love for us. While we were evil, while we were unrighteous, while we were his enemies, he demonstrated his love, his goodness towards us. That doesn't change. 
Romans chapter 2, Mark alluded to this this morning. Do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, his forbearance, and his patience, not realizing God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? God would much rather you come to him because he's been good to you. This is who he is. Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 said that there's no, God is no longer counting our sins against us. Not counting our sins against us. Now, here's the thing. Yes, God is holy and just. He's not just, I know that there's a false message that just preaches God is compassionate and God is gracious and he's all these lovely things. Yes, there is a holiness of God. There is a justice of God. God cannot be mocked. You will reap what you sow. Yes, he has set a time. A judgment is coming. But for now, he is for you and not against you. Even when you are against him. Oh, so all of the senators that you've been mouthing off and posting terrible things about on Facebook this week, God is for them. He is for them. He's not for their agenda. He's not for what they're promoting, but he is for them. That's why it's way better to stick to issues than getting personal. Because that's not the kingdom of God. And the things you're posting may be factual, but they're not true. Sorry, I have a little soapbox today. I'll try not to get on. <sighs> Too late. Romans 8. <laughs> See what happens when my wife is away? <sighs> Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, meaning he is, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, along with Christ, graciously give us all things? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, or sword? Hmm. Let's keep reading. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor present, nor future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, which includes all of our stupid choices, because it's in creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the book, Max really goes into the story of Joseph. And uh, we're not going to have time to go into it today, but here's what that, that story teaches us. No one can ruin God's plan for your life. No one. Not even your own dumb choices can ruin it. It may look like it ruins it. It may look like it sidetracks it. It may look like a setback. But from the foundation of the earth, God knew that stupid choice. And he has promised to work for the good of all who are called according to his purpose. In Genesis chapter 50, Joseph, when he confronts his brothers at the end of his life, he says this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. Do not be afraid, Joseph said, am I in the place of God? 
Now, God didn't choose the brothers to hate their brother. He didn't choose for them to sell him into slavery. But in his foreknowledge, before he founded the earth, he needed to get a guy down in, in Egypt. And he knew Joseph would have the kind of heart that he could mold and shape. And he knew his brothers were going to hate him. He knew his brothers were going to sell him into slavery. He said, I can work my purposes in that. That is not God's perfect will. It's either his good or pleasing will. But that wouldn't have been how God wanted it done. But he works it into our choices. That's the amazing riches of the grace and the knowledge of God. That's why I fall to my knees when I think that God could take all of this and somehow bring good from it. Our salvation depends on what Christ did for us at the cross. And so today, you and I can rejoice in the grace of God. We can rejoice that we get from God what we don't deserve. We can rejoice in his mercy, that we're not getting what we do deserve. And here's the thing. The grace and the mercy of God right now are being poured out on all people. That's the grace of God. The good things are coming on the righteous and the unrighteous. The mercy of God, the withholding of judgment is being given out, poured out on the righteous and the unrighteous. And the mindset that creeps into the church is, you know, we're escaping God's judgment because we're good people. And the world is in trouble. They're about to experience God's wrath because they're not good people. And here's the reality. None of us are good people and any mercy we're receiving from God is all on him because he's good. I have never been more saved or less saved than the first day I was saved. I know that we are being sanctified. I know that our salvation is being worked out. But you have never been more saved or less saved than the first day you were saved. Why? Because salvation depends fully on what Christ did for you. And this cycle of guilt and shame and condemnation that leads to anxiety in our lives is a lie. It's a lie. You don't have to perform. You have been set free from performance. And the thing is, is we tell ourselves, oh, pastor, if we start preaching things like that, people are just going to start sinning. No, they're going to actually stop sinning because they're going to be so overwhelmed by the grace, the mercy, and the love of God that they're going to be rooted and grounded in that love, and they're actually going to stop sinning. The law was powerless to save anyone. But the grace and the mercy of God saves everyone. We can rejoice in the Lord always because God exists and he is active, because he is near, because he is in control, and because he is good and he is for us. I want to end with a passage of scripture that comes from the book of Habakkuk. Have you ever read Habakkuk? I challenge you to read it this week. Habakkuk is an interesting prophet because the beginning of Habakkuk is Habakkuk complaining to the Lord about his own life and the nation. See, he doesn't like how God is handling things. He thinks that the wicked are prospering. He thinks that things are being mishandled. He even accuses God of being silent or absent, um, you know, kind of a lot like what is happening in the church world today toward God. But the Lord comes and he responds to him. And he says to Habakkuk, I'm going to tell you what I'm about to do, and you're not going to believe what I'm about to tell you, and you're not going to like it. How would you like it if God showed up in your complaining prayer time and said, I'm going to tell you what I'm about to do. Read it. Habakkuk 1, 2, and 3. It's just three short chapters, but powerful. I'm going to tell you what I'm about to do, and you're not going to like it. He says, I'm going to raise up the ruthless Babylonians to judge my people. 
I'm going to deal with the complaints that you think I'm not paying attention to in my people, but I'm going to use a, a, a wicked, ruthless people to do it. Now, this is years before Daniel was even born. And remember, Daniel went into that captivity? Okay. And then he complains again because he doesn't. He, I mean, God was right. He didn't like it. That doesn't make any sense. I know we've been bad, but why would you use a ruthless, wicked people to judge us? That doesn't seem fair. I'll just say it, fair. It doesn't seem fair. And I want you to look. God tells him what God wants and who he is in chapter 2. And we're just going to look at two verses. Habakkuk chapter 2. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. This is God. But the righteous person will live by his faith. Habakkuk, you don't understand how this all works. You don't understand why I would use a ruthless people to judge my people. You have to live by faith, not by sight. God said it first before Paul ever wrote it. Then he says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. That's how he ends chapter two, and I love it. Because in just the same moment that Job had with God, where he's like, I am going to put my hand over my mouth now because I spoke of things far too great for me. And I love Habakkuk's response in chapter 3. He repents, and he ends his chapter with this. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and though the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and enables me to tread on the heights. Now, don't miss this because this is, this is an agricultural nation. So what he's saying is there's no animals. There's no crop. There's no produce. There's no stock market. There's no value to my money. There's no nothing. It's gone. And in that moment, I will rejoice in God, my savior. I will rejoice in him. I mean, this is a full fledged repentance to trust him. Habakkuk says it's dark this is confusing. This is mind-perplexing craziness. But this is what I know. I can trust you. I can trust you. Max, in his book, gives us this quote. And this is what we're going to end with today. I want you to read it with me. Max says, I'm sorry for the pain that life has given you. I'm sorry if your parents neglected you. I'm sorry if your teacher ignored you. I'm sorry if a heartbreaker said, I do on your wedding day, but I don't every day afterward. I'm sorry if you were inappropriately touched, intentionally mocked, or unfairly dismissed. I'm sorry if you ended up in Egypt. But if the story of Joseph teaches us anything, it is this. We have choice. We can wear our hurt or wear our hope. We can outfit ourselves in our misfortune or we can clothe ourselves in God's providence. We can cave into the pandemonium of life, or we can lean into the perfect plan of God. We can believe this promise in all things. God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. 
So, Father, thank you today for the way that you have opened for us to have access to you. Thank you that when we were at our worst, when we were your enemies, you demonstrated your love for us by sending your son. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see anything that we've missed all along. Give us ears to hear what you're saying to your churches. Not just what preachers are preaching or teachers are teaching. Not just what we've always been taught. But give us ears to hear what you are saying. Soften our hearts where they've become hardened. Forgive us of our refusal, our stubborn refusal to believe that you are who you say you are, that you ultimately are in control. Holy Spirit, every time I lose my temper, I'm saying I don't believe you're in control. And today I will not accept shame and guilt and condemnation, nor will I rationalize that behavior. Today I will receive your grace and your mercy. Today, I will ask you to help me be perfect, just like my Father in heaven is perfect. Today, I will refuse to believe the lie that if someone mistreats me, that I cannot love them in return. Today, I will refuse to believe the lie that my life is in my own hands and I will trust that my life is in your hands. And in the face of every anxiety I face, I will declare that you are God, that you are involved in my life. That you are in complete control and that you are good and that you are for me. you to stand with me. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come to the front and stand here. In just a moment, I'm going to step down and I'm going to join them. And if you're here today and you just, maybe you're not in right relationship with the Father, you've not come to Him through the cross, through Jesus, we'd love the opportunity to pray with you and explain what that means and show you the way. If you want prayer for something, something going on in your own life, some turmoil emotionally, physical healing. We're here for you and we want to pray with you. If you want to come to this altar and just kneel down, Jesus said, come to me. Those of you that are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. And maybe you just need to bow your knee right now and remind yourself that God exists, that God is active that he is in control, that he is for you and not against you, and that he is good. And these altars are open if you need the space to do that. 
So I'm gonna pray a blessing over you. And when I'm finished, if you need to be dismissed, just do it quietly because we want this to be a place of prayer for those that wanna spend time in prayer or receive prayer as we close out our service today. And so, Father, I thank you for the ways that you relentlessly pursue us. God, I thank you for the truth that you are faithful even when we are unfaithful. And God, we will not use that as an excuse to be unfaithful. But God, today we just simply fall on your grace and on your mercy and ask Holy Spirit that you do a deep work in our lives. Help us to let go of control. Help us to relinquish everything that we're fighting for and put it in your hands. Help us to celebrate your goodness. Now, Father, over this body today, I pray your blessing. Father, bless them and keep them. Cause your face to shine on them. Be gracious to them. Lift up your countenance on them and give them peace. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you this day.